pray one more time before we dive into the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we just ask this morning again for your blessing upon this preaching. Father, may the preacher decrease, may you increase. And you know, we know in your word that you prom or you promised that that your word will not return void. Father, we pray this morning that it would do the work in the hearts of the listener that you intend. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. It's always it's always good to gather, right? It's always good to gather. It's always good to sing together with the saints. Uh, we gather for the purpose of worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I just want to remind you that this time should be a, an extension of your worship throughout the week. That we should come here together to worship together, but, but our lives should be a life lived of worship. Well, as you know, we just finished our sermon series on the Word of God. And I pray that you were blessed, as blessed by our time as I was, and preaching through that. And I know the other men who came uh, to preach, the other three men who came, were blessed as well. I hope that you've been encouraged to desire, to delight in, to defer to, and to defend the Word of God. In our day, as you, as you know, it is crucial that we recognize the importance of Scripture to anchor us firmly to our faith in Christ Jesus. Speaking of being, being anchored in the Word, speaking of being anchored in the Word today, we return to our expository study of the book of Ephesians. We've, been, we've taken, as you know, about a six-week break here at Grace Bible Church. Uh, we are committed to the verse-by-verse preaching of the Scriptures. We have, as I have mentioned many times, we have four pillars of our philosophy of ministry here at Grace Bible Church. We uh, we the exalt exaltation of God is our uh, number our first pillar. Our second pillar is the exposition of Scripture, and our third is the equipping of the saints, and the fourth is the evangelism of the lost. These ministry pillars uphold ministry here at Grace Bible Church. We are committed, though, here this morning, and we will start with our exposition of Ephesians. We are committed to the exposition of Scripture. We take the, the time to study every word and phrase in its immediate and biblical context in order to understand the meaning of Scripture. And this morning, I'm going to prove it because we're going to study basically the first part of verse 11. Uh, today, we're going to find ourselves in Ephesians 4.11, and all I could make it through was just the first part of it. So I ask that you would be patient this morning because we're going to do some heavy review and we'll also work to make some connections with the rest of Scripture. And so then we'll study, like I said, the first part of verse 11, which will set us up for the rest of that section from verse 11 to verse 16. Now, before we dive in, let me give you the proposition and outline of the sermon this morning. Uh, in this section, Paul uh, continues his in-depth explanation of Jesus' blueprint for building and unifying his church. He has provided special gifts, and I put in parentheses people, and we'll see why I would say that in a moment. For the first, the building's foundation, that's the first part of verse 11, 
the apostles and the prophets, and, the, and secondly, the building's framing, that is, the evangelist and the teachers. Well, when we think about the First World War, we usually think about or think of trench warfare. Entrenchment had long played a part in previous conflicts, but they were taken to new levels during World War II or the Great War. For four long years, the two sides faced each other in a two-way siege that stretched the length of the Western Front. Now, at the beginning of the conflict, both sides expected a campaign of movement, but each side failed to outmaneuver the other, so the war came to a bloody stalemate where both sides simply held their ground. So soldiers started digging entrenchments for protection against the enemies. Most expected this to be a temporary situation, but the days turned into weeks, and the weeks turned into months, and then to years. And as troop movement ground to a halt, men found themselves stuck in one place and remained under constant fire from the enemy. So they started to dig deeper trenches and make improvements on their trenches. The trenches were started by hardy souls who desperately dug just to protect themselves. But as more troops were brought in, the trenches became more than just crude holes in the ground. They became incredible feats of engineering. So what was was made by uh, the initial soldiers who built out of fear and desperation turned into something much greater. As the months and years went by, experts and strategists began to apply knowledge and, and engineering knowledge and military strategy. And they built an incredibly complicated system of trenches. Concrete dugouts were added. Men were given uh, shelter and, and a place to stay. They added latrines and kitchens and medical stations. The Germans even took the time to set up the, the trenches in, with such a strategy to trap the enemy behind the lines with, in massive killing fields. They purposely designed the trench facing the enemy to give way against a full enemy assault in order to draw them into these areas where they could then attack them. Uh, between World War I and World War II, the French actually built the Maginot Line in anticipation for the same type of war. And at the beginning of that Second World War, Hitler and Germany used their famous Blitzkrieg, making the French plan obsolete. You see, time and strategy had moved on. But the development of trench warfare remains an intriguing part or period of war. Now, it's fascinating to me, that a single trench dug by a few soldiers and a hail of enemy fire became an intricate system of trenches which were expanded throughout the war. And these seemingly impenetrable, that is, trenches motivated Hitler and his generals to develop the German Blitzkrieg, which allowed Germany to take over much of Europe. Now, it's also intriguing to me that we can find an analogy for the early church here. The church started in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when God sent His Holy Spirit upon the disciples as they gathered. And just after receiving the Holy Spirit, Peter took his stand and the church was born. You could say that this was the first shovel of dirt which led to the spread of the church throughout the earth. From a human perspective, the church grew organically from that point, just like A vine grows on a trellis. But we must not forget that Christ had a specific plan for building His church. 
As such, the, in Ephesians, Paul uses the metaphor of a building to describe how Christ has built the church. Now, as we have said, in this section, Paul continues his in-depth explanation of, of Jesus' blueprint for building and unifying his church. He has provided special gifts for the first building's foundation. Now, before we dive deep into that point, I need to give you a deeper explanation in the form of a review to help us understand the present context. Now, just before Jesus ascended, he promised the disciples that he would send his Holy Spirit. And he says this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, you will, receive the Holy, you will receive power, that is, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And he says this, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So there we see, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we see the fullness of Jesus' plan for his church. The church would start in Jerusalem, but it would grow to encompass the earth. Now, before Jesus' death on the cross, he declared to his disciples, and we've seen this many times, that he would build his church. Now, this is incredibly, or this is absolutely critical. So I want you to turn to Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. Some of you will recognize some of this material as a review from our series on the church. In Matthew chapter 16, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says this, verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now there has been much discussion as to what Jesus meant, specifically the identity of this rock. Some believe that the rock is Peter's confession of Christ as Messiah. Others believe that the rock is Peter himself. The Catholic Church teaches and argues that this is the beginning of what they call the apostolic succession, with Peter being the first pope. I don't think this is true, but I do think that Jesus refers to the authority structure of the church. I also believe he begins to give a glimpse of the church's one foundation, or the church's foundation. We just sang the song, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I would, I would argue that the chief rock is Christ himself. But I believe, and I believe that the idea of authority is the key to understand these verses. Now, listen to verse 19. Again, this idea of authority. He says this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth and shall have been bound in hev heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So for Christ, so for Christ to give these key keys of the kingdom of heaven, he must have possessed them, right? Now, let me back up just a little bit. I think the conversation between Jesus and his disciples help us understand Christ's point in verse 18. If you go back to verse 13, if you go back to verse 13, he says, he was asking, now Jesus, when he came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now notice that the text says he was asking. 
we should recognize that we don't have every word that was spoken during this discussion. We just have a synopsis of the banter back and forth. In other words, I think this, is, this seems to be, anyway, an ongoing conversation about the identity of the Son of Man. As such, I think that Matthew gives us the high point of that discussion. And it seems like, then, that this discussion is an extension of dialogue in theological circles, if you will, regarding the identity of the Son of Man. Now, I think that, that in some ways we can get off track here because I have myself, and I think others, think that Jesus is referring directly to himself here. After all, he is the Son of Man, and he knows it, right? But I would argue that there is another meaning here. He is, I believe he's thinking, or he's pointing to a theological discussion reminding, or regarding, that is, the identity of the Son of Man from Daniel 7. Verses 13 and 14. Now I want you to just listen to this text. It says this. I kept, this is Daniel writing. It's a vision. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now, we need to recognize how the disciples would have understood these verses. Specifically, they would not have comprehended the if at least fully comprehended the connection between Jesus and this Son of Man. Now later in, in Matthew 26:63, the high priest told Jesus to say whether he was the Christ. And in verse 64, so if you're, if you're writing your notes, it's 26:64. he says this, or Jesus says this. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself, nevertheless, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you see the connection? The connection back to Daniel 7. So there's a, a direct connection of this Son of Man in, that Jesus is referring to and Daniel 7. So clearly Jesus is telling the high priest that he is the Son of Man prophesied by Daniel in Daniel 7. Now, verse 14 of Daniel, Daniel 7, listen again. And to him, that would be to this Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So we see then that the Son of Man, who we know to be Jesus, is given, has been given authority by the Ancient of Days, the Father. He was given specifically dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Now notice the text says in Daniel 7, it says that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Now, you might recall, you should recall, that the church's mission is to make, the, make disciples of all the nations. And that in Revelation... Uh, that all the nations, uh, that every tribe, tongue, and nation will be worshiping him at the throne. In Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, it says this, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So the question is, where did Jesus get this authority? 
where did he receive this authority? Well, obviously from the Ancient of Days, according to Daniel 7. And back in, back in Matthew 16, if you're still there, it says, Now when Jesus, verse 13, when Jesus came into the district of fellow, we already read that, but it says, it says, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 13, verse 14 says, and they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah and or one of the prophets. Now, at Jesus' prompting, the disciples began to throw out all the different possibilities for the identity of this Son of Man. Again, again, I believe that he's referring to the Son of Man in Daniel 7. But in verse 15, Jesus abruptly, I believe, turns the conversation specifically upon himself. He said to them, verse 15, but who do you, who do you say that I am? Notice he, say, he turns the conversation to who he is. And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So Jesus then affirms, that he is the Son of Man. Now, I would argue that here at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus makes a declaration that he, is, he has set his face to Jerusalem to fulfill the Father's plan. And this journey, which would culminate in being presented victorious as the Son of Man at the throne, or this, this, this journey, that is, would culminate and him being presented victorious as the Son of Man at the throne of God, just like Daniel prophesied. You see, this journey would take him to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on, uh, on the third day. This journey would take him to the humiliation of the cross and the grave, but will climax with being raised from the dead and being seated in the heavenlies on the throne of God. That should be familiar, because that's what, that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, that he, would be, he was raised up and seated in the heavenlies. So we have established that Jesus has been given the authority, given authority as the Son of Man. And in Matthew 16, 19, we see that this authority will be delegated to the, the apostles. That's when he says the keys of heaven will be, or keys of the kingdom will be given to you. So that authority that has been given to the Son of Man by the Ancient of Days will be given to the apostles, represented then by Peter. Now, we need to make connection to our text in Ephesians 4. We'll start by giving you a quick review of our studies and study in Ephesians. The, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus. After, after beginning in Jerusalem, the church had begun to grow just as Christ had said. As the church grew, the disciples began to experience persecution, which caused them to spread out. And a man named Saul was instrumental in this persecution of the church until Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus and spectacularly saved him. Now, Jesus turned Paul from persecutor of the church to apostle. Paul was Jesus', according to Acts 9:15, Jesus' chosen instrument to bear his name before the Gentiles and kings of, of the, and the sons of Israel. Paul personifies this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says this: "The most useful members of a church are usually those who would be, be doing harm if they were not doing good. 
And we can certainly see that Paul was a man who was doing great harm until Christ turned him to do great good. From there, Paul was sent to to plant churches throughout the known world. The church at Ephesus was in Asia Minor. It It was the first of seven churches in Asia Minor, and these churches were arranged such that Ephesus was the first and main church in, in Asia Minor, and it was the first church mentioned by Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3. Ephesus was situated with access to a seaport at, and was at the midpoint between the churches in the east in Jerusalem and, and other churches in the east and the churches in the west, including Rome. Now, all of these things made it crucial, the, the church at Ephesus, it made it, all these things made it crucial for the, future, excuse me, for the future of the early church. You might say that Ephesus was the key church outside of Jerusalem as the gospel continued its spread westward. Said another way, if the church at Ephesus began to falter, especially doctrinally, then all the churches became vulnerable. Therefore, Paul understood this, the crucial nature of this church, and he understood that he needed to, to hold, uphold this church doctrinally, so I believe that he wrote this critically important letter to the church at Ephesus to explain to them the importance and function of the church. Now, some people believe, some folks, commentators believe that this is a general letter. I, I understand why they would say that, but I think that this letter specifically was written by Paul to the church at Ephesus because he understood the strategic importance of the church. Obviously, these letters are were spread around, and so it, I understand why people would say that it's a general letter, but I think that Paul had the, understood the crucial nature of the church at Ephesus. The letter then is structured into two main parts. The first three chapters were more doctrinal in nature. They explain the gospel and the ministry of the gospel. The first chapter begins with the plan of God to save sinners from the foundation of the world. The chapter ends with Paul's prayer that the church would recognize the richness of all that has been accomplished in Christ Jesus. He wanted them to realize that Christ had been raised from the dead and seated at God's hand, right hand in the heavenlies. And then he says this in verse 21. This is chapter 1, verse 21. That Christ has been seated at the right hand in the heavenlies, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In verse 22 it says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, I should tie back, I should point out that this language ties back to Matthew 16 and Daniel 7, does it not? If, if you are in Ephesians 1, look at the next phrase. He says this, And he gave him, that would be Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, let's put this in perspective. He has given all authority and power. Christ has been given all authority and power. And Christ has delegated that authority and power to his body, the church. And again, this points back to Matthew 16. Basically, we see that the church has been given the authority. So Paul prays, in, in Ephesians 1, Paul prays that the church will recognize the incredible power that has been given through the gospel. And in chapter 2 then, Paul begins to lay out the power of the gospel in making alive those who were dead in their trespasses and sins. 
through God's great mercy and love, He made dead sinners alive in Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. He has saved us by grace through faith. That not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. But He has saved us unto good works that we would walk in them. And I think that's an important distinction as we get into chapter 4, as we begin to see the worthy walk of a Christian. Now in chapter 2, verses 11 through 20, the apostle begins to show that Christ brought together the Jews and the Gentiles in the church. And he has done this by abolishing the enmity, which is the commandments, between them, making the two into one new man, establishing peace. That's uh, chapter 2, verse 15. And he reconciled them both in one body to God through the cross, And it is through the cross that he has put to to death the enmity between the two groups. That's chapter 2, verse 16. And he has given access, both access and one spirit to the Father. That's chapter 2, verse 18. Then he says this in chapter 2, verse 19, which is incredibly important to our study in chapter 4. He says this, Paul writes, it says this in verse 19, He writes this to a primarily Gentile church. He says this, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now at this point, again, I should point out the, the tie back to Matthew 16. Remember that Jesus said, Upon this rock, I will build my church. I believe the rock he's referring to is his own authority given to him as the Son of Man by the Ancient of Days. He has passed this authority to the church through Peter and the apostles. Therefore, they become the foundation of the church with him being the chief cornerstone or the chief stone. The chief cornerstone is the primary foundation stone at the corner of a structure where the architect squares the rest of the building. So Jesus himself is that stone. He, along with the apostles and prophets, form the foundation of the church. Now, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul explains his own apostolic ministry to the church. He uses himself as an example of the work which God is doing with his people. Now, significantly, it starts out in 3.1, he tells us he's been imprisoned. Now, we know from history that he's been imprisoned for five years when he pens this letter. The, The dissonance here, the dissonance is palpable. Paul has just described these lofty truths of what what Christ is accomplishing through the church. Yet Paul, the leader of the Gentile church, the apostle to the Gentiles, has been imprisoned for preaching Christ to the Gentiles. The dissonance is palpable. I mean, the the church at Ephesus, I'm sure, is going, what is going on here? Our our fearless leader is in, in jail for preaching the gospel, yet... What, what's going on with the truths that he's preaching? Are they real? So Paul took chapter 3 to explain the mystery of Christ and the church which had been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. 
Paul had been made a preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles so that, they, so that the manifold wisdom of God may be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Basically, at the end of the day, Paul's suffering for the cause of Christ was all in God's plan. It's all in God's plan. As such, Paul urged the church. Now think of it this way. I, again, I think that he's speaking to, he's writing to specifically the church at Ephesus. I think the church at Ephesus is critically important to the mission of the gospel at that time. And I think he's telling them, you can't lose heart. You can't stop. You have to keep preaching the gospel. You have to continue to move forward. Understand that I'm suffering for your sake. I'm suffering so that you will be able to go preach. Now, this brings us to our passage in Ephesians 4. In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, in these verses, the... The apostle calls the church at Ephesus to the worthy walk, considering the glorious calling that he's described in the first three chapters, more specifically in the first two chapters. Considering the glorious calling of the gospel. Now what he's saying is is that if you're going to walk according to the gospel, it's a walk of humility and gentleness. It is also a walk of love for God and love for one another. In In the context of Ephesus, Paul calls both the Gentiles and the Jews, to show tolerance for one another and to preserve the unity that they've been given by the Spirit when they were brought together as the church, as the new creation in Christ. You see, they didn't have to work to be unified, right? The Spirit has already done that work. The Spirit has already brought them together. They must work to preserve the unity and peace which has been granted in the Spirit. Then in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, Paul gives them the basis of this oneness. They were no longer to be divided. They were one because of the oneness of of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says there's one body, there's one Spirit, just as uh, you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So therefore, they were no longer to be divided, but they were to be unified. Therefore, the worthy walk is a walk of unity. But this begs the question, what about their diversity? And he begins to explain this in verse 7, which is beginning to inch toward our our verse verse 11 of chapter 4. He says this, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. In other words, Christ's gift, In other words, each person has been given gifts according to the good pleasure of Christ. As such, there is a diversity of gifts. So that we're we're called to be unified in the Spirit, but we understand that there's a diversity of gifts, that we're all different in Christ. So starting in verse 8, Paul gives the the basis for those gifts. Now, if you want to know specifically what he's talking about here you can go back and listen to the sermon on this passage but here in verses verses 8 through 10 he's quoting psalm 68 now psalm 68 describes the victory march of god through redemptive history and i would argue that verses 8 through 10 then 
Paul is using verses 8 through 10 to describe the victory march of Christ. This victory march, which began at Caesarea Philippi when Christ set his face to Jerusalem to die on the cross, this victory march would take him to the grave, the lower parts of the earth, then to the heavens to be seated on the throne of God so that he might fulfill all things. And so that the, as the Son of Man, the Father would give him according to Daniel 7, dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. And to take this one step further, one day this same Son of Man will appear on the clouds in all His glory at His second coming. But in the meantime, and that's where we live, in the meantime, He has promised to build His church of which we are part. This brings us back to verse 11 as we look at the foundation of the church, the foundation of this building. And look at verse 11. This, that caught, all of that was basically review and connection and catches us back up to our study. And it says in verse 11, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Now, as most of you know, I'm a structural engineer by trade. I'm responsible for building the roof of many buildings. Uh, I use building plans and specifications to apply them and apply them to produce calculations and drawings for my part of the building. In those plans, uh, most of the time, the first section is what we call the general notes, which tell us how the building will be built based on its future use and location. We find next the next section in the plans almost always, is the foundation plans in the next section. Uh, Why is this? Why is it it set up that way? Well, after we know the purpose of the building and the location of the building, we must know how to build it. This always starts at the beginning with the foundation. Beloved, the church is no different. Christ said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. Here in Ephesians, what we're seeing is how he is, has built his church. First, we must know the mission of the church. As Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, we are to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's the mission. According to Acts 1, 8, we're called to be Jesus' witnesses throughout the entire world. But Jesus didn't leave us to flounder in that mission. He gave us the gifts. He gave us us the gifts, or better said, gifted people to accomplish his mission. First, he he provided for the foundation of the church, and that's where we get to the apostles and prophets. Now, first let us look briefly at the apostles. Now, we saw in Ephesians 2.20 that these people were part of the foundation of the church, but who are they? Well, I think we can say that they're incredibly important. Irenaeus says, The church has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. Well, what's this faith that he's talking about? He's talking about the Christian faith. That we have received what we believe, the doctrine that we believe, has been been received by by us from the, the apostles. And I would say directly from the apostles. In other words, we wouldn't have sound doctrine if not for their ministry. And as we saw in the series that we just finished on the Word of God, the New Testament that we have wouldn't exist if not for their ministry. 
Every book of the New Testament was either written by an apostle or an associate or close acquaintance of an apostle. So their ministry then was, was at the core of new revelation for the church. Now I would argue that this office of the apostle passed away with the passing of the original twelve. They were given to the church, these apostles, for the specific purpose of building the foundation. And then they passed from the scene. Now let me make sure we understand that their main duty was to provide revelation to a new church, to the new church. We see this in Acts 2.42 where the people were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Very specific there. Today we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching by studying what they taught, by studying their doctrine where? In the New Testament. Now we... We saw, we just mentioned it earlier, the revelatory nature of their ministry in Ephesians 3.5 where Paul said that the mystery of Christ was revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets. Again, we must recognize the purpose of their ministry was to establish the church and to give us New Testament revelation. Therefore, we see these, these men, these were unique men who were personally gifted and appointed by Jesus, the head of the church. As such, because they were directly appointed by Jesus, their ministry can't be replicated. Theirs is a specific, specific, unique appointment by Christ himself. Acts chapter 1 gives us the, uh, the qualifications of, a, of an apostle. They must have witnessed the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus, including his resurrection. Now, this qualification applies to the original 11, or 12, minus Judas, who betrayed him, plus Matthias, who was appointed by the Lord in Acts chapter 1. Later, we see, or we know, that Paul was called to be an additional apostle to the Gentiles. He was personally called by our Lord on the, on the road to Damascus. So we have the 12 apostles plus the apostle Paul. That's it. No more. That's it. These men were... These men along with the prophets, were given to the church to establish the foundation of the church. And we must recognize that there are those who, but we must recognize that there are those in the church who would believe that the apostolic gift is for today. I think it's instructive to hear what the church fathers have said about the office of apostleship. If we're going to say that it's, that it's for today, then, that, then we're going to say that that gift is being given today. But here's what they said. It's what Irenaeus said. We have learned from none others than the plan of our salvation than those through whom the gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public and at a later period by the will of God handed down to us in the scriptures to be, to be the ground and pillar of our faith. Tertullian says this, Since the Lord Jesus Christ sent the apostles to preach, our rule is that no others ought to be received as preachers than those whom Christ appointed. For no one knows the Father except the Son, and him to whom the Son wishes to reveal him. Nor does the, nor does the Son seem to have revealed him to any other than the apostles whom he sent forth to preach. End quote. Now, let me give one clarification. There is another category of people in the Bible called apostles or sent ones, but they are not a part of this original group of the apostles. The Scripture gives us clear, a clear distinction between the two groups. The original 
the original 12, 13 including Paul, or Paul, were called apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they were personally appointed by the Lord. This other group were called apostles of the churches, according to 2 Corinthians 8.23. These folks were appointed by the churches and sent out for ministry by the churches. Therefore, they were apostles of the churches, but they were not official apostles of Jesus Christ, or we should say, we could say big A apostles. So the big A apostles, the 12 plus Paul, these men are foundational to the church and they will judge the tribes of Israel, according to Scripture. And their ministry to the church cannot be replicated. Now there's a second foundational group here, the prophets. These are the New Testament prophets. Their job was to follow the apostles and reinforce their ministry. Now let me say something real quick about the apostles. Let me make that connection back to the authority that, that Christ gave the apostles the authority. He delegated that authority. And, and Ephesians chapter 2 seems to show that they, along with Christ, formed the, the foundation of the church. And we see this second group, the prophets, who come along with the apostles. Now, their job, it seems, to, was to follow the apostles and to reinforce the apostles' ministry. So they came in behind the apostles. Uh, so the apostles would go to a new area where Christ had not been named and they would establish the church. The prophets came in behind the apostles and preached to those who had become Christians under the ministry of the apostles. According to 1 Corinthians 14.23, the prophets, their ministry was a ministry of edification, exhortation, and comfort. So they were there to reinforce the teaching of apostolic doctrine though at times they were given direct revelation from god scripture records a couple of these instances in acts eleven twenty-eight, agabus predicted a great famine that would affect the entire church in acts twenty-one eleven, again agabus predicted that paul would be made a prisoner at the hands of the gentiles therefore Therefore, what we see is that, that, that the apostles were given the revelation and doctrine for the church. The prophets then were mainly used to apply the apostles' doctrine in the church. And in that sense, they were not like the apostles. In Acts, or I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 14:32, Paul says that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And in this way, the prophets, uh, they kept each other in line they, the, to ensure they were truly speaking from God. Therefore, their, their ministry never rose to the level of apostles who spoke directly for God. Again, I, let me say that another way. They, they had to be held in check by the other pro- prophets. Now, I think that we can see the, pro- the ministry of the prophets as a transitionary from the time of the apostles until the time when the church fully possessed the canon of Scripture. So the apostles gave new revelation in the form of letters that was brought together in the canon. But I think in that transition period, in that transition period, it would seem that the prophets are the ones who, who made sure that the church stayed on a good footing until we had the canon of Scripture. Said another way, they were, their ministry was to ensure the fidelity to the apostles' doctrine. 
together with the apostles. They formed the foundation of the church. Now, next week, we've, this week we saw the, the building's foundation. Next week, we'll see the building's framing. Specifically, we will study the ministry of the evangelist and the pastors and teachers. But as you consider what we've learned today, you might be, you probably are saying, so what? What, is this, what does this have to do with me? Well, let me, let me give you a few things to think about as we come to wind down here toward the end. <clears throat> First, as humans, as people, as people made in God's image, we all want to be a part of something bigger, right? We all want to be part of something that, that matters. Well, the church, beloved, this little church, Grace Bible Church Gainesville, is a much bigger deal than what meets the eye. It is more important than we could ever imagine. In Ephesians 3.10, it says, God's manifold wisdom is being made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. So when we meet as a church, beloved, when we meet here, we are a demonstration to the rulers and authorities. We're a demonstration of Christ's victory. His victory at the cross. We're a demonstration that He has been given the authority from God the Father. Therefore, don't take lightly. Don't take lightly your call to a worthy walk. Don't take lightly your part in what God is doing here. Don't take lightly that Christ has given you personally, given you gifts to use. Use them for His glory. Secondly, secondly, Christ has not forgotten us. If anything's clear, He gave us the ministry of the apostles to establish the New Testament. He gave us the ministry of the prophets to fortify the apostles' teachings until it could be codified. We have His Word. We see His plan. He still gives gifts to the church. And next week what we're going to find is He's given us specially gifted people to evangelize and to edify and to shepherd His church. He hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't forgotten us. And the same Son of Man who was presented before the throne as the Ancient of Days, we will see Him come again in the clouds. He's coming again. We're just in that, that meantime, right? Just in that meantime. Third, we must as a church teach the whole counsel of God. Now, I, realize, I realize that some of these things we talked about this morning are, are heavy lifting. I, I like to call it that. When, when, when I know it's deep, I say it's heavy lifting. Believe me, I'm worn out when I leave the, the pulpit on Sunday. But I believe this is necessary for us to be equipped Last Sunday during our youth discussion, we told the youth that one day, that one day that they would need to go out and find the, a good church, right? When they leave their parents' home, they may, they may be faced with finding a good church. They need to find a church which preaches the whole counsel of God, which stands up and says, Thus saith the Lord. Next week we'll find that the teaching shepherd's job is to teach and equip the church for the work of service. Fourth, Fourth, we must trust Christ to produce the fruit of the ministry. The church 
is part of God's plan of redemption. There are times we can struggle with church, right? Amen? We struggle with it. I can. We can be a boring bunch sometimes. We can struggle with one another sometimes. We can fight when we ought not be fighting. But we must remember, we must remember that it's Christ who works in us. And He's working in us through the mountains and through the valleys of church life. He works through the doldrums of life. He works through the highs and He works through the lows. And all the while, He's the one who produces the fruit of ministry according to His perfect plan. And we can see that clearly as He built His church. And it's still seeing, we're still seeing that today. Oh, beloved Christians, believers, those whom Christ loves, pray that you would live your life according to God's plan. That you would consider all that Christ is teaching us here. That we would walk worthy. That we would walk worthy in our lives before Him. That humble walk. The walk of humility. The walk of love and the walk of unity. Right? Amen? Unity. As we have a diversity of gifts. Serving Him with the gifts He's given us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we sung earlier, the church is one foundation. Is Jesus Christ our Lord. It's amazing when we see the fullness of Your plan. The fullness of what You've accomplished. We didn't hit on it, Lord, but In that same passage in Matthew 16, you call upon your disciples to take up their cross and follow you. You call your disciples to a life of suffering. We thank you that we have in, in Christ our model We praise you for what he has accomplished in going to the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that you made him to be sin who that that you laid upon him the sin of the world. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Father, we have been given a gift in Christ. You've saved us not because of anything that we've done, but because of what you have done. The wrath that we deserved, you've laid upon your Son. And we receive his very righteousness. Father, may we live according to that righteousness. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Christ's name, amen.